Hello, down bitches! Y'all, we are so close to Obsessed Fest, I can taste it. What does it taste like? Coke slushy! Christmas morning. I can't believe Obsessed Fest is right around the corner. This seemed like a distant, distant memory for so long, and we're so close. So I hope you are coming to see us. If you are not, there are still some tickets available that you can grab. All you have to do is go to ObsessedFest.com to grab your tickets. And you will have the opportunity to see live shows, panels, meet and greets, Q&As with all of your favorite true crime liberties. And don't forget karaoke. Don't forget karaoke. If you all don't come to sing karaoke with us, we're up for duets. (laughs) If you want to do a Suddenly Seymour or a little bit of Grease or a little bit of Summer Lovin', Joey and I are your ticket to a memorable karaoke experience. And there's going to be so many amazing podcasts represented. You don't want to miss this. So we hope we see you at Obsessed Fest. I hope we do too. It's hot. I'm hot. I, I, this is my last week. I, I can't be under this rotisserie circle anymore. <laughs> okay. What we're not going to do is complain about the heat because you know I hate the cold. So that's what we're not doing today. We're not complaining about the heat. <laughs> Are you wearing velvet? You're wearing velvet and this is, you know what? You don't get to lecture me. You are a sociopath in velvet in what I know is 100 degree weather in New York. Start this episode. Start this episode. Start it. <laughs> Listen, this is one thing I will never get mad at Florida about. I love your weather. What? What's going on? Don't stop recording. That was the weirdest thing I have ever experienced. I was, all of a sudden, it was like someone else's phone call cut through. And I could hear a little girl going, can you hear me now? No. I swear to God, this is, this is now a, this is a ghost podcast. No. (laughs) I'm dead ass serious. Oh, no, no, Stannis! Oh, <laughs> oh! You guys, his face went white. I didn't know what was happening. I just thought we had a bad connection. I am not lying. You know, I don't. Okay, all right. Well, this podcast is haunted now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, I did not sign up for this shit. No, no uh-uh. I did not. I did. I don't do. I don't do the supernatural. No, I don't do, do I. The supernatural because I believe in it all, and I'm not here for it. I don't want to talk to a ghost. I don't want to look at a ghost. I don't want to interact with a ghost. Ghost, if you're out there, I am not the person for you. Don't try yeah. talking to me. No, keep moving. Not today. Yes, ghost- ghosties. So here we are, drama club. By the time you hear this, we will have announced that we decide to put love on or betrayal on the back burner for a while. It's getting a little dark. It's getting a little dark except for that, you know, last bank robber guy. He was a piece of shit. <laughs> it's fine. But we have moved on. This is it. I am going to thank you. We are moving on to the IT show. I'm already cackling. Uh, I almost got away with it. Uh, spoiler, the word almost is in bold, italicized, and in Helvetica font. It's an operative word. <laughs> but we're going to give it to you. We're going to start. And you know what? Here's the thing. There's just so many hilarious, good, good, good true crime shows out there that we just have to get to them all. So we should probably just, you know, start doing these faster, you know what I mean? I agree, but I am gonna I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna be honest. After Love, Honor, and Betray, y'all are all still on my prayer list. I'm praying yeah. for you all. <laughs> Somebody hurt y'all. And we are starting with the most recent season, season eight. So here we go. Season eight, episode one, got to pretend to be a cop. 
A troubled teen gets sent to an adult prison. You're dead! I was out of control. He grows up behind bars and thinks love will save him. Cheryl? He was very gentle. He was a gigantic teddy bear. But life on the outside proves stressful. You have to pay the bill! And drives him back to the dark side. I just resorted to what I knew best, violence. He never learned his lesson. He becomes more and more reckless. What's going on here? Until he pushes his luck too far. Dealing with him, use caution. Right off the bat, I'm grateful. I know. I started a journal. I feel appreciation because never since Who the Bleep Did I Marry do we get these delicious and ridiculous takes to the camera. We are four seconds in and I am invested. Honey, also I'm convinced you picked this episode so you could show off your New Hampshire accent. It's truly, we're in Nashua, New Hampshire. I I want to apologize ahead of time. Nashua. I might get insufferable. But not since Fred Murray has a gift been bestowed on me from the baby Jesus himself because we're in Nashua, New Hampshire. (laughs) Listen, we're in 1977. What a year. Listen, Nashua, I got four nephews there, all mechanics, and uh, we used to summer there. I summered in New Hampshire. You know, I went from Portland, and then I would summer in New Hampshire. It's gorgeous there, Joey. Have you been? <laughs> I have not. I, it sounds beautiful. It sounds like the way people talk there. It's very tranquil. Sounds I, like a I lot of spas. I got a feeling I'm gonna be I'm gonna be coming back a couple times in this episode. <laughs> so don't you worry, your pretty little curly hair about it, Joseph. Peter Gibbs has been breaking the law for as long as he can remember. I started smoking pot at nine years old. I was in trouble constantly. Gibbs blames his bad behavior on the fact his parents split up when he was very young. Here we are in 1977, uh, and we meet Peter Gibbs. No relation to Andy, Barry, Robin, or Maurice. Unfortunately. We find out that Peter Gibbs has been breaking the law as long as I've been talking shit. My whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we already know that Peter Gibbs is a bad boy because his hair is slicked back and he's smoking a cigarette against a tree. We know this. It's done. Reenactment Peter is going to give us a lot of levels, a lot of colors in his acting. He's going to give us a lot of emotion through this episode. Now, the real Peter Gibbs is also here. He's in an orange shirt, so I'm thinking it wasn't a fashion choice. I'm thinking things didn't turn out well, but like Six Flags, I am here for the ride. Oh, I mean, real life Peter is giving you Phil Collins meets high security prison realness because that orange jumpsuit is bright. (laughs) It is bright. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, Peter tells us he started smoking pot at nine years old. That's really young to start smoking Where pot. does a nine-year-old acquire pot? Not Chuck E. Cheese, I'll tell you that. Maybe the back of the Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> but you know, Gibbs blames his bad behavior on his parents' divorce. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, my parents are divorced as well. We'll get more into it. But his mom, Mama Patrina, is here. I have a couple words for you, Patrina. You know, she said he wanted a father. A he father. just wanted a father. Yeah. And I guess my first question was, did he die? And then she said, his father wasn't there. And I was like, oh, okay. He just wasn't there. Good to know. <laughs> my mother raised me. She was always working. So I actually just ran the streets. I started more burglaries to obtain money to buy pot. And pot back in the 70s for a pound was 450 bucks. 
Now, can I just say, okay, according to Peter, weed was $450 a pound. Mm-hmm. First of all, who is buying weed by the pound that isn't intending to sell it? That's a lot of weed. Also, yeah. I used the Google machine. You'd be very proud of me. Okay. You know what the value of $450 in 1977 is in 2022? $1,600. Close. 2200 That's a lot of money for a nine-year-old to scrape up. Yeah. Why yeah. is a nine-year-old buying pounds of weed? It, I, <laughs> what happens in Nashua? I, like, <laughs> I feel like actually Peter got quite a steal with that weed price. I feel like that's actually, I feel like that's actually a very good conversion. I mean, you know, listen, if you're going to get in business, you know, sure. buy low, sell high. I've never, I have never bought weed by the pound, so I yeah. don't know, believe it or not. It's a lot of weed. Yeah. So, Peter went from stealing bikes to selling pot, and we meet Joe Molinari from the New Hampshire Police Department, and we learn that later in life, Peter's dad became a cop. Yeah. Now enter, you know, Party City's best cops coming up to reenactment Peter, and they search him, and they find a bag of oregano in his pocket. Um, <laughs> I was like, babies, this looks nothing. How's props for this show because this won't be the first time I have notes. I have several notes and they're like, looky, looky what we have here. I was like, come on, actors. I know. Come on. The reenactment guys, they have these little like walkie talkies on their shoulder, but they're like, obviously like not walkie talkies. They're from Party City. So they can't like disconnect. So we see these poor reenactment actors who I'm sure only got one take and they're like struggling to get the walkie talkie. I was like, can somebody help them? These poor guys are struggling making, you know, $100 a day and a boxed lunch. It's the struggle bus. That's what this episode should be called. I always wanted the father thing, but I didn't have him. And he was a police officer, so if I got in trouble, I knew that my father would come down. So I got to see him. Holy cash on your son here, and uh, he said he found this bike. But getting busted doesn't get Gibbs the father he's looking for. So Peter says, look, I used to get into trouble on purpose because I knew they would call my dad and he would come to the scene of the crime and then I'd get some time with him, which is really sad, actually. Yeah. Um, but one day Peter got caught selling the weed, like you just said, and dad showed up and said, I'm not saving you this time. You're going with them to jail. Yeah. And he does. Yeah, he goes to Juvenile Hall, and we learn that he's there. He's sort of in and out from age 10 to 16, and this is where he meets all his friends. You know, those are formative years. I mean, that's just not really a saying. That's really where you learn, um, you know, trust and friendship and all these things. So this is where he meets his lifelong friend, Grammy. Was he named a Grammy after the award or after someone's grandma in Biloxi? We'll never know, but Grammy it is. <laughs> they bonded over their mutual hate for their dad. I was like, I mean, same, but I don't like steel bikes. Like, can't you just like do theater like all other normal horse children? I know. Like, truly. Why are you guys going in and out of juvenile hall? But I digress. So on October 25th, 1982, great year for music. Great year. Yeah, great year. Uh, the two of them decided to hail a cab and use a sawed-off shotgun to rob the cab driver. That's what we're doing? <laughs> yeah, so reenactment Peter and reenactment Grammy are like, stick them up! We got a gun! <laughs> and, like, again, it was a big gun, and this is where we meet Casey Devine, the county attorney for Nashua, New Hampshire, and she was like, this was pretty unusual for New Hampshire. Mr. Gibbs's crime was pretty sophisticated, and they actually turned the rearview mirror away so their faces wouldn't be seen. But Gibbs leaves behind a crucial piece of evidence, a fingerprint on the mirror. 
apartment cab driver is talking to the police and was like, two teenagers held me up and is explaining it. And they're like, wait, 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 go back. Because if they touched the rearview mirror, we can dust it for prints. Now, I have to tell you, I watch this. And initially, I sit on my couch and I voice memo all of my notes. Okay. Oh, God. It voice texted Prince like Prince. Uh Uh-huh. You know, like... And I was like, not only is my phone continually trolling me, all of you people are too. You are all on a timeout. I will turn this podcast around, I swear to God. So they turn to the rearview mirror for all the forensic evidence that they need. Yeah, and they are able to very quickly identify Pete. Yeah, I was like, y'all, you these guys were not the head of the class. They were not the fastest bunnies in the forest. I'll oh, tell you that for not, free. Not the fastest yeah. bunnies in the forest. Well, and the other thing, I will say at this point, though, this is when I really started to notice how cute the reenactment actor was for Peter. He's very cute. He's very handsome. Very handsome. But in a, like, I could see you doing a little bit of time way. It was very good casting. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Detectives pay him a visit at his home. Yeah, it's me. Why? Can you tell us where you were yesterday afternoon? And arrest him on the spot. I was here. The severity of the crime, combined with Gibbs's violent history, means his days of being treated as a minor are over. So when they realize that this robbery had taken place, the detectives come by and reenactment Peter looks really annoyed that he has to answer the door. And there's like a musket on the counter. Like they they, <laughs> they pan to the gun. Now, I don't know what a lot of guns look like, but this is 100% something from Western times. <laughs> like the props guy was like, yeah, I went to Patty City and they had the gun. And when you pull the trigger, it says pow. <laughs> or they had this musket looking thing. And they're like, the musket, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, it is you, it is so bad, you guys. I'm going to continue to be this insufferable. Oh, oh, I mean, the budget was low. Yeah, $6. Here's the thing. He was 17 at the time, Peter was. Yeah. And they tried him as an adult, and he refused to f- snitch on his friend Grammy, and he took the fall. And by the fall, I mean 15 years in prison. And just so y'all know, robbing people at gunpoint, it's never worth it. But in this yeah. case, it definitely wasn't because they only got, tell them how much money they got from the cab driver. $53. What? What? Oh. Come on, friends. You shoved a sawed-off shotgun in this poor man's face for $53. Yeah. So now we cut to the yard. The yard. Uh, you know, where all the guys are weightlifting in the yard. And Peter had been in and out of juvenile hall. This was his first time he's with adults. And, you know, these, these men in this prison are like, they're testing him. 17-year-old Gibbs is an easy target in maximum security. In any prison system, if you're a younger man, they, they think that you don't know how to do time and whatever might try to take advantage of you. Pete decided to make a reputation for himself pretty quickly in that jail because day one of serving his 15-year sentence, he strolls into the prison yard. Inmates working out. Somebody calls him sugar tits. He does not appreciate that. And he grabs the weight and smacks this dude in the face with it. And I mean, that's one way of making an impression. I just imagine all the inmates scrambling, a bunch of guards tackling into the ground, and he's like, He really did make a splash. (laughs) (laughs) He sent a message. Eight years pass in jail, and he's grumpy because we get a slow pan of the grumpiest face 
face. They're like, can you give us Grumpy? He's like, yeah, how's this? They're like, perfect, bitch. That is great. This man is making the same face I made when you told me people thought Scott Peterson was hot. It's a mix of disgust and constipation. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's terrifying. So it just turns out when you grow up in prison, you grow up very fast. One day you're a sweet angel baby, and the next you're stabbing a man in the eye over a cup of expired pudding. We all have our journeys in life. <laughs> And so one day he's eight years in and he's visiting with his mother and he sees this woman that he recognized from the neighborhood named Cheryl. Cheryl's visiting her brother and she hadn't <laughs> seen Peter in like 10 years or something. She's like, Peter? It's Cheryl. And so she gets up to say hi. They talk. Of course, you're not allowed to get up. And the guard was like, uh, ma'am, sit down. She's like, get my number from my brother. And I was like, oh, great. And we're in love after lockup. Growing up, Peter was like one of the good-looking kids. I had a crush on him. All the girls had a crush on him, and he knew it. Cheryl was my neighbor, and back then the father used to always tell his daughter, you better stay away from that kid. You know, and she was trouble then, and she's trouble now. He looked good, you know, and just same face, but grown up. And that's how it started. You know what? It's the bad boy thing. We all wanted to date Jordan Catalano in the 90s. His clothes looked dirty. His hair looked like it had been styled with egg whites. But who cares? He was hot and he was bad. But I will say, Peter Gibb, you are no Jordan Catalano. <laughs> okay. So after they met that day, you know, Cheryl says, that's how it started. <laughs> I, I can't stop. I can't stop. That is it's what started. she said. And I can't stop. I mean, it is what she said. So they continue to chat on the phone. She went to visit and just love after lockup style. Two years in, they fall in love. Peter served 12 years of his 15 year sentence, made parole. And where did he go? Straight from prison. Yeah, straight to Cheryl's house. It is truly amazing. I guess you would imagine the, just those two years of what your life is going to be and how it's going to work out until the reality of a person who's been in jail for 12 years comes living in, in your house and they're pooping in your toilet in the morning. I don't think it's right? pretty. Honey, it's been more than 12 years, though. He's been in and out of prison since he was 10. He doesn't really know another life. Yeah, I know. He never had a job or, or paid a bill. And before you know it, Cheryl's pregnant with their daughter, Amanda. Peter's now 28, working in a scrapyard. Scrapyard. Um, <laughs> try it. Wait, do it. Uh, and he got a job at a scrapyard. Very good. Oh, thank you. Little Boston. Little Boston. But very good. <laughs> But he's trying to make a go of it. And he said, this This actually hit me. He said, you know, as long as I was staying home and staying with my family, I was okay. Yeah. Uh, but a few weeks pass and he starts, you know, hanging out with his, you know, bestie Grammy. So remember, Grammy is the guy that he committed the armed robbery with. Yeah. But Peter never turned him in. Yeah. Graham has been free this whole time. I always used pot and pot led to cocaine and... So it was always, if I used that first time, it was over. Old habits die hard, and Gibbs slips up big time. Oh. I got a dirty urine, and the parole officer sent me back to the prison. While Gibbs is back behind bars, he misses the birth of his daughter, Amanda. Listen, that is really upsetting. I mean... Peter, you done fucked up. You're never gonna get that day back. No, you're not. That broke my heart. You know, it's if you miss somebody's wedding, chances are they'll have another one. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Are you, you gonna have another one, honey? Not me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I try and learn from my mistakes. So Peter, being the romantic that he is, he decides to do what every young lady fantasizes about. He proposes. 
from prison. It's like yeah. something out of a Nora Ephron movie. And then wait for it, <laughs> they get married in the shoe unit, which is basically a jail within a jail. And then Peter's mom was like, it was a small wedding. I was like, babe, it's prison. I don't think they're allowed to. What are you involved to? They're not renting out Gustavinos for the reception. <laughs> oh, this like, mother was not having this wedding at I all. Was, it was a small wedding. Yeah, honey, it was just the two of them. They were like... and and. And I think a CO took a picture. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were like, what else can you tell us? Say something nice about the wedding. She's like, she had a beautiful black dress on. I mean, that's the nicest I can say. The bride wore black, okay? <laughs> Gibbs serves out the rest of his sentence and is released again in 1996. Once again, Cheryl's waiting for him with open arms. We put families up, welcome home. What kind of surprise? Your favorite. <laughs> I made like his favorite um, stuffed shells, so I made like a ton of them. We got people coming. Now, I could see inside of this pot, uh -huh. and while I didn't count, there cannot be more than like 24 shells <laughs> in that pot. The, the pot is less than a quarter full. I want the name of the on-set <laughs> producer and the director and the props master, because I have a lot of notes. Honey, you're not feeding anybody with six shells. What do you... <laughs> They're just like little craft singles. I'm starving. First this is of all, the Italian right now, in you. In this moment, and I'm like, that's not enough shells. Yeah. Who, who's that for? Just you? <laughs> that's not enough shells. This is the irate Italian Ellen right now about there's not enough shells in that pot. Don't eat it, silly. We have people <laughs> coming over. Who? People who just ate? <laughs> <sighs> Well, listen, Peter is home and everything is going to be great. It's going to be great. This is where the episode ends. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> so remember, Peter has spent most of his life in jail. He doesn't understand responsibility. He doesn't understand paying rent or bills. He can't keep a job. And um, with his reputation, no one wants to hire him. Desperate, he falls back on what he knows best. I had buddies that if they needed money collected, I would go to someone's house and, and get, get the money up or we're going to have a problem. I would collect and I get half whatever payments from that. Gibbs makes a point of keeping his criminal activities hidden from his family. So he was like, you know, working for a loan shark, getting money, beating the shit out of people, getting half of whatever the person owed. And he didn't tell Cheryl about this. Cheryl had no idea. He was basically leading a double life. Until February 1997 rolls around Super Bowl Sunday, our favorite holiday. Um... <laughs> And he's out with a friend who's a drug dealer named Chad. Chad. Peter continuing to make solid choices. Chad is such a gay name. I know. I was like, was it Chad? Chad's okay. name is Chad. And Chad was like, all this football has really put me in the mood to go collect some money. How about you and I walk over to Kooky Carl's place and get that money he <laughs> owes us for drugs. So they do. <laughs> so sadly, they never make it to Kooky Carl's place, but they do run into another drug dealer where they have a West Side Story knife fight. Tell them all about yeah. it, Alan Marie Marsh. So then Peter, you know, being Peter, he just starts stabbing people. And, you know, Chad <laughs> bolts because, of course, he would because his name is Chad. Chad's yep. like, I am fucking out of here. I am not getting fucking stabbed today. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I am in no mood. So then Peter sees Chad bolt. Peter goes after Chad and he's like, you know what? Uh, I know you love those jeans. And honestly, they really do look great. But I'm going to stab you. And... Police sirens go off, and then they say, In a knife fight, you can get stabbed. Remember that next time. I was like, what does that even mean? It Where am I? It doesn't mean anything. 
nothing. Nothing. And then reenactment drug dealer Chad was like, Peter Gibbs stabbed me. <laughs> Honey, oh, it was chaos. It is chaos. And I mean, Peter barely gets home. He, Peter makes it a point to say, look, I never got caught at the seat of the crime. It was always when I was about to walk in my front door or I'd just gotten home. And he was home and the police pull up and arrest him in front of Cheryl for assault with a deadly weapon. Baby, he takes a plea bargain and ends up going back to jail for, tell him how long, yelling Marsh. Ten years. Cheryl decides to tell us how smart Peter is because he's read every National Geographic there is. I'm like, cool. Who cares if you know that giraffes can give birth standing up? You can't stay out of prison, sir. You're stabbing people in the streets. But I know a group of camels is called a caravan. Sorry, sir. You still you still stabbed a guy. Yes, it turns get, out you did still stab a yeah, guy. Yeah, yes, you'll get in 10 years. So it's December 2007, and he's out. Peter's now 42, and he's like, okay, I'm, I've really made a string of really, really bad decisions. Uh-huh. Uh, Let me call my bestie, Graham. And he's like, hey, buddy, I am out of jail again. Uh, what are you up to? And Graham's <laughs> like, oh, I'm now a drug dealer. I was like, oh, good news. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. The fuck is everyone doing in New Hampshire? <laughs> news. Where is the manager of this shit show? The manager's on a break. There the is no manager. I'm going to say there is no manager. Grammy had lost his license and he could never drive again. I was his personal driver and also if he needed anything collected, a lot of times people wouldn't pay. So he would call Gibbsy up and I would deal in violence if need be and they would get his money. Now we see reenactment Peter, who is very hot at this point, collecting $200 from the oldest man you've ever seen. Oldest. And I'm not talking like all your old photos are like just naturally in like sepia or like have like a red hue. I'm talking this man sat next to Jesus in math class. And he like jumps him. He jumps this old man. Oh, there's a lot of old man beating in this episode. They really yeah. pick it on the old people. I'm like, leave these poor bastards alone. And poor Cheryl's like, I mean, this is my life. I have a 13-year-old girl and my husband is never around. I never know where he is. Well, he says, I was working a full-time job. I wanted to provide. And it turns out transporting drugs and beating up people is a full-time job. Don't get it twisted. But Peter says, That sounds crazy, but that's how I support it. I know I had a pocket full of money and I could pay my bills. They seemed got good Christmases. They always had things. They always had things. What did you get things. for Christmas this year, little Ange? Things. It was magical. Remember what I gave you for our 20th wedding anniversary? How could I forget? Things. Oh, his last dying wish? Oh, it was for things. Beautiful. (laughs) Things. Yeah, sometimes you just need to be with your family. Like on Christmas Eve 2007, Peter was not home. He was out with Grammy and Grammy's girlfriend, Anne. I'm like, go home, bro. Go home. Yep. So there's an old guy in the bar and he's a client of Graham's. He buys drugs off of him. So he's in the bar and he's like, hey, how are you? Merry Christmas. I got $92,000 cash in my pocket from a reverse mortgage. (laughs) And you know what? There's nothing that will put you in the Christmas spirit more than drug dealing, a couple of Bud Lights, and violently robbing an old man with a cocaine addiction. (laughs) (laughs) So this old man 
had been arrested. And when he was arrested, he had all of that cash on him, which was obviously taken into evidence. So then, naturally, he goes to the bar, explaining how the money had been returned to him that morning, and he wanted to buy some cocaine. Yeah, honey. And he's telling everybody in this bar. I'm like, rule number one, if I ever had that much money in my possession and I'm at a bar, I'm going to tell everyone I'm poor. I'm going to ask people for money. I don't want anyone knowing that I got money. (laughs) Exactly. So Grammy and Peter are like, hey, also Merry Christmas to you and a Happy New Year, in fact. Um, You have like 100K in cash on you. He walks away and Peter's like, cool, I'm going to rob him. (laughs) And then, no, I know Peter has made some bad choices. You know, he robs and he stabs and all that stuff. But Grammy isn't a very good friend. Because Graham, remember, you know, Peter took the fall for that robbery. Yeah. And he keeps getting in trouble around Graham. And Graham is like, yeah, 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 rob him. And then I'll take half. (laughs) I was like, Peter, I'm I'm sure he's in the drama club at the 10. You need new friends. Yes. When my dad retired, he threw away all his police equipment while I helped throw it away. And it went from the dumpster into my trunk. So when I went in, I just walked right in his house. Don't you think? some kind of apprehension of like police stuff like I'm not now nor have I ever been a police person so I you know I'm just I'm taking the show at its word but like before a policeman retires aren't they like do you want to give us your guns and stuff or like whatever I mean like whatever take it like how did he get he wasn't like well I don't need this anymore and just threw everything in the trash I mean maybe they thought he wanted to keep it like memorabilia maybe it was like when we left kinky boots and they let us take a couple shoes yeah Okay. Yep, you're right. You're right. Take the guns, but don't use it. Don't use the gun because it's got cops written all over it. But, you know, go have some fun. Peter was like, listen, I'm I'm not throwing this shit away. I'm going to use this. I'm going to save this for a rainy day. Well, that rainy day has arrived because the plan is that Peter is just going to stroll into this dude's home with a gun and his father's old badge and demand the money as a police officer. I'm not sure nope. that's how policing works. Yep, I don't think it's a great idea. But Peter was like, no, I didn't ask you, Ellen. And so <laughs> he walks in, he's like, Domino's, psych, I'm a cop. And the old man was like, let me see your identification. So the old man pulls out a gun too. Now, apparently Peter had a 22 and, you know, this old man had a 38. I don't know what those numbers mean, but I guess a 38 is higher than 22. So I guess that gun is bigger. Yeah. So Peter is like acting like a cop. Now, he actually is quite an actor because the real Peter Gibbs worked at the Nashua Community Players in Brigadoon the fall before. And... (laughs) Are y'all buying this shit? Because I ain't buying this shit. Go on with your story. Let's hear the rest of it. But he was like pretending to be an <laughs> undercover cop. And he was like, I know you have this money. Like, well, I don't. Why was he after the money? So the old guy was like, it's under the couch. Yeah. Cocaine Moses. <laughs> yeah. He gave up that money pretty fast. And uh, yeah, Peter and Grammy get away with $92,000. That's so much. That man had just got it that morning. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And it was cash. It was cash. Like a big bag of cash. Detective Sergeant Dan Medeiros arrives at the scene. The victim gives Medeiros a solid lead. Yeah, I I bought it from them earlier. It was, it was uh, Bill Graham and Bill his Graham. buddy. The victim in this case implicated uh, William Graham, who was well known by the Nashville Police Department for his criminal activity. 
he brought him in for questioning and he provides an alibi. He was like, I mean, yes, I was totally at the bar with the old man. By the way, we're not calling him old man. They call him old man on the show. Yes, yes. We're not being insensitive assholes no. ideas. No, they they press him about Peter. And he's of like, course. I haven't seen Peter in days. Yeah. So then, of course, Grammy, you know, being his bestie, hightails it over to Gibbs's house. It's Christmas, by the way. Yeah. And Grammy was like, they know they're on to us. We got to go. So then Peter was like, oh, dang it. They're on to us. I have no choice. I have to move to Florida. So they end up in Daytona, Florida. And how do you think they spend their money? Peter, why don't you tell us? I brought six ounces of Coke, um, 20 grams of heroin, 160 methadone wafers, and two pounds of pot. I would go to the strip clubs and just do stupid stuff. I had never had that much money. Babes, that's a lot of drugs. You trying to party, you trying to die. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Either one. But I mean, it, it really seems like a recipe for both. So, and they're also just, you know, going to strip clubs. You know, they're living large, buying drinks. Now, this strip club... ID, I'm coming for you again. <laughs> they're on a leather couch, uh-huh. and there's a pink wall with a white chair rail with some wallpaper above it, and there's like a sign that says this is not a strip club or something. This is not <laughs> now, nor has it ever been a strip club. I'm convinced the AD was like, we can use my house. We'll <laughs> use my house, and we'll just like flash the lights. Like there's one guy just like turning the lights on and off in the corner. <laughs> That's not even his house. That is his Aunt Debbie's house in Mon- Claire, okay? I don't care. So it is so like bad. it is so obviously someone's living room. But yeah, but listen, Peter and Grammy they living it up, buying everyone drinks, getting lap dances. But through it all, and even when Candy the stripper was sandwiching Peter's head between her breasts, Peter was thinking, <laughs> you know what? God, I miss my family. <laughs> so he calls up Cheryl and says, how you doing? Um, I know Christmas was rough, but you know what sounds like a good idea? Why don't you send our 13-year-old daughter down here to Florida and I'll take her to Disney with me while I am a fugitive yeah. on the run. Yeah. Also hopped up on a bunch of drugs. I got a lot of cash and I hang out in people's living rooms with strippers. I mean, it doesn't sound like a great idea to me, but what do I know? I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a rom-com. Go on with your story, Yellen Marsh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course Cheryl was like, I mean, this doesn't sound like a good idea, but also this is her dad. And, you know, Cheryl probably kept a lot of Peter's life away from Amanda and she did want to see her dad. She missed him. She didn't yeah. know he was like, you know, all of his history and that he was, you know, stabbing and robbing and going to Florida. I don't know. <laughs> Gibbs spends seven days with his daughter away from the seedy underbelly of Daytona Beach. I had a little hideout in New Smyrna, and so that's where I took my daughter. We would be at the beach, and we would do go shopping at the malls, and we had a good time. I just can't yeah. imagine this man stabbing people in the streets and then just watching him on, it's a small world. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just such a yeah. weird, <laughs> but whatever, he did it. And so uh, they have a great time, and um, they go. He, he sends her on back up to his mother. So as soon as she leaves, Peter gets right back to the partying, and uh, his drug problems are getting real bad. He was buying crack, uh, which we all know is whack. Yes. Thank you, Whitney Houston. <laughs> And he says he starts to get paranoid. He thought that the New Hampshire police were after him. Uh, Turns out baby boy was not paranoid. He was correct. Yeah, honey. 
They were on to him. They were just trying to keep tabs until they had enough evidence to arrest him. In the meantime, these boys have snorted and lap danced their way through $92,000. And they got to figure something out, boo. Turns out he should have read less National Geographics and maybe more Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) A little more money-wise. The fugitives are now broke. Gibbs makes the risky decision to head home to get money and drugs. Little does he know, back in New Hampshire, Graham's girlfriend, Anne, is about to give Detective Medeiros the information he's been waiting for. You know Graham's girlfriend, Anne, that they spent that beautiful Christmas Eve with? She's about to come in clutch because she goes to the cops and she's like, hey, can we talk? I recognize that this isn't a police station and this is like, you know, just an office and you guys (laughs) stuck a bunch of thumbtacks with pictures up. But um, anyway, remember that guy Peter Gibbs? Well, my boyfriend is involved with him and... Uh, I think they're doing some bad stuff down in Florida. There, I said it. (laughs) And I think they robbed Grandpa Moses of $92,000. There, I said it. And I think he's coming back to Nashua to rob more people, and I'm a little scared. There, I said it. (laughs) And if he finds out that I did this, he'll probably murder me. There, I said it. (laughs) (laughs) No one asks her any questions. They just keep writing. She's like, oh, you guys really... You really waterboarded that out of me, didn't you? <laughs> Nashua's like, oh, we're on to him. They've been looking for Gibbs. So they head to Cheryl's. Y'all, this fake SWAT team at Cheryl's front oh my door. God. They waited three whole Mississippis. They were clearly waiting for the director to yell action. And the guy <laughs> in the front was like, did they call action? Did they call action? Okay, and then they open. I'm going to have an aneurysm by the end of this episode. This I is. <laughs> So they tear apart poor Cheryl's house looking for Peter, and she legit did not know where he was. Meanwhile, Peter arrives in Nashua, not knowing that the cops are tearing his house apart as he's heading home. And Peter gets to the house, calls, and he's like, I'm in the backyard. And Cheryl's like, babe. Wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's in the what? The, the backyard. The yard? The backyard. So I come through the backyard. I come through the backyard. Listen, <laughs> if you can't do the action, do you hear me? You know I'm sitting in the corner. I'm sitting, I'm being quiet. I'm on my junkies. You really disappointed me, Blue Eyes. I'm sorry, Sharon Bagabones. I just get nervous around you because you're such a star. Sorry. Sharon, can you just give us, we're, we're, we'll be done in a couple minutes. She just wants my attention. I get it. I can't wait for her to meet my mother. The SWAT team was here. My wife told me Peter, they're looking for you so bad. Gibbs knows he should leave town, but he desperately needs to score some cash. An old neighbor from his childhood just might be the answer. And then he's like, huh, let me start to make some good decisions. Hold on. I'm going to call this guy from prison because, like, we were really close. Like, uh, you know, uh, when you're prison buddies, you're prison for life. That's a bond that can't be broken. Yeah, it's beautiful. And he's like, look, there's this older man I've known my entire life. uh, Eats at the same restaurant every day. And as a tip, he would leave a a Morgan silver dollar. For those of you who don't know. Did um, you know this without Googling? Oh, yeah, I knew. Um, You know what a Morgan silver dollar is? Yeah, a Morgan silver dollar is a Uh coin with the face of Morgan. Morgan Fairchild across it. It's an American <laughs> icon with a coin to match. Okay, I didn't have to Google Morgan that. Morgan Silver Dollar was the first silver dollar <laughs> minted since the Coinage Act of 1873. So they're coins from 1878 to 1904. Do you know how much they are worth? No. They're worth anywhere from $10 to thousands. Wow. Depending on like the year and the condition. And his friend, it was like, yep, I'm, I'm, I, I got you. I'm going to bring my friend. We're going to drive down from Maine in this murder van. And uh, we're going to go over to this poor old 
man's house and we're going to rob him blind. And it was a stolen murder van. Yep. So friend Mike and his buddy go inside, rob the old man, come out pretty quickly with buckets of coins with Morgan Fairchild's face all over it. So they drive away and the police get a call. So they get a description of the van from a neighbor who saw it all. And, you know, they're like, wait a minute, that fits the description of a stolen van. And so the plan is find the van, find Gibbs. So a cop pulls up. What could go wrong? So the cops call for backup and now they're just waiting for Peter to show up, which he does and he gets arrested. And I'm like, my man, you didn't see these lights? You just strolled up? Oh, you guys, it's still not over. Do you need... (laughs) You need an intermission. Do we need a dance break? We need, yeah, let's do a dance break. Okay, I hope you got a drink because, <laughs> listen, we're finishing, but we're finishing strong. It's August 11th, 2008, and Gibbs has his hearing in Nashua. Now, he's held in the county jail at the courthouse, and with all these charges... Not looking good. So he's like, I either could go to jail for the rest of my life. I could plead guilty. Yeah. Just plead guilty and, you know, see what kind of a deal I get. Yeah. Or, or, and hear me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could make a run for it. Wait, what do you mean? I mean escape this hellhole and get on with my life somewhere else because I don't want to spend the rest of my years behind bars. And that's what he does. He knows the security in the courthouse will be far more lax than anything he will face once sentenced. I learned all sorts of stuff in prison. There's so many ways to get cuffs off. And he takes a paper clip and uses that to open his leg cuffs, but folds them back over so they look closed, but are unlocked. But before he could get his handcuffs off, the guard had come back for him. This is all very Jason Bourne. Yeah. His feet are free, but it look it looks like he's in cuffs, right? Yeah. So he pretends to trip. Then he, you know, he's over. The police officer is, you know, off his guard for a second. He clocks the police officer and takes off running. In cuffs, in an orange fucking jumpsuit. Uh-huh. Like, what could go wrong? Nothing. Taken off through the building there on top of him. I'm like, babe, you didn't think this through. You're still cuffed. The cops are gonna catch up with you. This man runs down five flights of stairs out the back of the building, and baby, she's running for the river. The river. Now, I, this man had to be in shape. I'm, my idea of exercise is rolling my eyes and shaking my head. I am well aware. <laughs> but, like, it was he's running, and he's running for the river. You have to think that, like, your adrenaline is just getting you there, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's very Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. Yeah. He ends up by the river. He can't swim. His hands are cuffed. And the current is strong. So, what does he do? He decides to give himself a mud mask. And I don't mean the relaxing, exfoliating kind. I mean, this man was trying to camouflage himself in the woods. Babe, did were you going to do that all over your orange jumpsuit, too? You're an orange. But tell them what movie he saw it in. Predator. (laughs) I was like, what? Did they show that in prison? Like, do they just show how-to movies? By then, I'm surrounded. They just point guns at me, telling me, Peter, please lay on the ground, lay on the ground. Gibbs knows they will shoot to kill. I did almost get away with it. Move to our boys. And I immediately think, I don't think that plan was ever gonna go your way, my love. Plan? I really don't. There was no plan. That man was flying by the seat of his pants. Yeah. This man has a list longer than both of our body counts <laughs> for all of his crimes. He gets 40 years. And then Casey, the Nashua County attorney, says... It's really it's, it's really sad. He, he could have been a completely different person. And maybe that first conviction set him down the wrong road, but he committed an armed robbery. 
And I kind of agree with that about, about what she said. Like, things could have all been different. I mean, this dude was raised by the Department of Corrections. Yeah. We all have bad things happen to us. For some folks, horrific things happen to us. And sometimes the response we have to those things make a spiral or act out. But at some point, you have to assume responsibility for your life and the choices you make. Am I going to fall victim to circumstances that I can't control? Or am I going to take control by not letting trauma define me and go out and make a better life for myself, make better choices yeah. for myself so that I can make a better life for my child? You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's a waste. It's, it's really, really yeah. sad. You know, so if you go searching for Peter Gibbs, make sure you're not confusing him with the Peter Gibbs who appears to have a lovely podcast on horticulture because <laughs> uh, I, I made that mistake. So I found a lot of research on Peter Gibbs did that you I really? want to share with you. Okay. No, I really did. Okay. Number one, he has two daughters. I don't know why the other one wasn't mentioned. Okay. Uh, maybe it was a privacy thing. That's fine. Now, I reached out to Bruce Kenna, who was his attorney, because one of the arguments that was that I found online was that Peter never received any counseling or treatment in prison. And he has been positively diagnosed with ADHD, bipolar disorder and PTSD. So wow. I think that is a very, very interesting conversation because we can agree that the prison system in the United States is set up for people to fail. And there are few reentry programs that are effective. And, you know, the minute you step out of any kind of facility as a free person, you are smacked in the face with possibly mental illness or homelessness or, you know, lack of job skills, drugs, gangs, who knows, right? So that all makes me very sad. Now, I reached out to Bruce Kenna and he was a little cagey and I was sent, I don't know if it was him, I was sent information about Peter has gotten in more trouble in prison. Uh. So much oh, so you. that the state of New Hampshire was like, we don't want you anymore. Huh? Yeah. And he was sent to Maine. And the state of Maine was like, we don't want you anymore. He is now serving out the rest of his sentence in Washington state. Now, listen to the rest of this real quick. He is 53 years old. He has not had a visitor in five years. He wasn't able to be with his mother when she passed. He wasn't able to attend the funeral, even virtually. He's got grandkids he's never seen. And I do think it is a little bit of cruel and unusual punishment to keep him away from his family. He is a criminal. Of course, criminal should be doing time. They, they, he is where he is supposed to be. He is a danger to people on the street. But he is still a human being. Yeah, I agree. So they are trying to get Peter transferred back to New Hampshire and New Hampshire won't have it. Wow. Yeah. The argument is, yes, he is a dangerous and violent person who was unable to keep himself out of prison. I also found an interview, um, if you guys want to watch it, on Frontline. And he seems pretty desperate, my friends. He has threatened to murder the warden oh, God. and other inmates because here's what. He doesn't have anything else to lose. Right. What do he, we always say? People who have nothing to lose are terrifying. He's saying, send me home or I will kill people in this prison. <sighs> so it's a lot. I mean, it's a big, big conversation of lifelong criminals and and the justice system and the prison system. And are we able to reform from within? All of which I am not qualified to speak on. I am barely qualified to speak on anything, really. I don't know who gave me a microphone. Say something funny. <laughs> I feel like I'm looking at a National Geographic right now because your blouse is completely open. Actually, it is. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> bow, 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 bow. I 
y'all, this velvet blouse, I mean, it must be melting off of your body because I can fully see your flesh tone bra. Your yeah. boobs have been staring at me for easily 15 minutes. It's a third love bra, girl. Third <laughs> love is back. It is third love. Not, no joke. Um, That was crazy. I actually really do love this show because it's so bad. It's so, so bad. We love you guys so much. We love you, down bitches. We cannot wait to see so many of you soon. By the time you hear this, you will know that Joey and I are going to go on tour. So we hope to see you in New York, Boston, Texas, or Florida for now. Can you believe we're going to Texas and Florida? I can't wait. We're just, we're tempting fate. So I hope to see you guys there. Lots of hugs, lots of open mouth kisses. We love you down, bitches. We love you, and I love you, yelling mush. Love you, Joey. (laughs) Bye. 